Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. and gentlemen this is the pancakes and power slam show hosted by sports illustrated and crave wrestling's chris featherstone we're going to have a lot of fun today and yes ladies and gentlemen when you uh totally overhaul and upgrade your uh equipment by miles uh that's what happens when you can completely update your studio you you have it on the first day and uh <laughs> and this is what happens. But ladies and gentlemen, 195 episodes, and we are going to have a fantastic time. I am Chris Featherstone, and I would love to introduce, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only fallen angel, Christopher Daniels. How are you tonight, sir? Uh, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Although I'm not quite sure I'm ready for this because I have a waffle, but not a pancake. So I'm not sure if I'm, I should be on the show. I hope I'm not like <laughs> sent aside for a different guest. I, I can go make a pancake real quick. I just wasn't prepared. I'm just, I, I feel, I apologize to the fan base. It's it's totally fine because you're a natural heel. So of course you're going to go against the grain against and the grain. waffles uh, instead you, of pancakes. You know me so well, Chris Featherstone. You know me so well. Indeed. I tell you what, Chris, you are, um, I've been watching wrestling for over 30 years 
And I would I would have to say that Christopher Daniels is one of my favorite workers. I, I just enjoy your work, and I I've been writing. I, I wrote for Bleach Report for over three years. I, I currently write for Sports Illustrated, and I love just critiquing professional wrestling. And I've watched hundreds and hundreds and thousands of wrestlers in my career. And uh, yeah, man, I, I just really always enjoyed your work. Um, but there are some questions that I have of just wondering why Christopher Daniels um, has has gone has went through the journey that he's gone through, and I'm very intrigued to to find out more. So I I really really appreciate you taking your time to to be with us tonight and be with the, all the live listeners. We have a lot of live listeners uh, uh, that will enjoy the road and the journey that we have tonight talking about the career of Christopher Daniels. All right, let's crack this open then. It sounds like it's going to be an interesting show. Absolutely, sir. And not just because it's about me, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Well, uh, I think it's it's always interesting. We've had 195 episodes, and uh, each and every one of them have been absolutely stellar. Um, but yeah, to, to today, tonight's going, it's going to be ex- exciting because you know, what's so, so interesting about Christopher Daniels is that you've been, uh, you've been in the business for, for 22 years. Is that correct? Uh, yep. Coming up on 23 this January. So, wow. Incredible. And in those 22 years, you, you are one of the only active wrestlers who have had experience in WWE, WCW, TNA, ROH, and New Japan. Am I correct on that too? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm not sure. I'm sure there are a couple more, but maybe I might be the one that's the only one that's still active. Yeah, right. Active wrestlers, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So that's uh, that's something as well. And you're. A, uh, I hope that uh, you you don't get upset by me. Uh, uh, well, Google Google already beat me to it, but you are a forty-five-year-old man that uh, wrestles like a uh, probably a twenty-five-year-old man, and that's uh, it's always captivating. So, um, and it seems like you know what's so funny about uh, you and your age and your experience is that it seems as if you have. I, I watched you in a live um, show recently in a ROH, and I I got. A good friend of mine, um, one of uh, one, one of our uh, staff members here at uh, Crave Wrestling, uh, I, I told him I got I really got him hipped to the work of Christopher Daniels, and I said, man, you know he's he's forty five, and he wrestles like he's twenty years younger, and that he has ten years left at least. So, how do you? I mean, is it is it a, a cardio thing? Is it just wrestling for so long to make it seems like you can do it in your sleep. How are you able to stay and keep up? Cause we, you know, we have other 45 year old people in the business and it really <laughs> seems as if they, uh, they are literally on their last leg. So what, what differentiates Christopher Daniels and having such Chris, it, it's like, a, it's like fine wine. You get better as your age. So how, how is that? How is that possible? Well, first of all, thank you for that. Um, I appreciate that uh, that observation. Um, it's a lot of little things. Like like you talk about cardio, you talk about like keeping yourself in shape. 
and, and, and all of us as wrestlers do that. But another thing, another facet of it is the mental game. And a lot mm. of it is the fact that I, I still love what I do. I still enjoy going out and, and wrestling in front of fans. And um, it, it's sort of a, a personal, like a, a, I push myself because especially working in Ring of Honor with so many talented guys, I want to go in there and still prove that I'm as good as any of those guys are. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I push myself to, to, to be able to keep up with guys that are, you know, five years younger, 10 years younger, sometimes even 15 years younger than me. And, and um, you know, after 22 years of wrestling experience, I sort of know what I can and what I can't do. And I, I try to focus on my positives and my strengths. And, uh, and, I, and that's how I can put out, I, that's how I can go out every night and wrestle and, and uh, perform at that top level. You know, I never try to do more than I think I can do. Um, and I know what works for me as a, as a performer, as a wrestler. And I go out there and I try to give that to the fans every time I'm in the ring. Yeah. Yeah. And it's absolutely incredible. So let's journey down the road of uh, Christopher Daniels here. So let's go all the way back to the beginning and all I've interviewed dozens and dozens of people here on the show. And I always like to wonder what, why wrestling? You know, I, I can share my story. I'm actually working on a book uh, about just my personal story uh, of uh, just becoming a wrestling fan and eventually a wrestling journalist. But it just, for me, it was my great grandma that, that made me start loving professional wrestling. What was it about Christopher Daniels? Uh, well, before you were Christopher Daniels, what was it about you, or was it what, what was it that said, you know what, professional wrestling is the way to go. This is where I'm going. There's no other option. Was it a match? Was it a a friend who liked wrestling who invited you over? What was it that captivated you about professional wrestling to endeavor in the career? Uh, well, the truth of the matter is there were two sort of distinct segments of my life um, because when I was young, uh, well, let me explain. First of all, there was a period in my time where I was just a fan of professional wrestling. But at that point in my life, I never thought that I would be able to become a professional wrestler. Um, you know, when I, I grew up in the North Carolina, I grew up in North Carolina, which was the uh, sort of the middle of the Mid-Atlantic territories, which ended up growing into the NWA and then into WCW. So I grew up watching guys like Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and the Road Warriors, and uh, you know, I, I got to see the Full Horsemen. And you know, at that period in time. Um, the average professional wrestler was like 240, 250, 260 pounds. You had guys like Nikita Koloff and uh, uh, Lex Luger and those guys. Um, and I was never that big of a guy as I was growing up. I was, you know, sort of average size. So, like, when I grew up watching professional wrestling, to me, the, the idea of being a professional wrestler was one of those pipe dreams. Like, I didn't think, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to be – I'm going to get, I'm going to gain a hundred pounds and become this muscular guy and, and be able to be a pro wrestler. So as I grew up watching it, it, it never was a, Oh, I'm going to do that one day. It was, wow, this was, I love this is entertaining. It kept me captivated, but I never thought this would be a, a thing that I could do. And then later on down the line, after I went through high school, I went through college, I graduated college. 
with a degree in theater with the idea that I was going to be an actor. And so um, once I graduated, I moved to the Chicago area and uh, was trying to get into the, the theater scene, but it was so very difficult to find work uh, on a paying level. I mean, it was easy to get into uh, like a theater crew or a theater club, I guess you could say. But, um, you know, at the same time, I was living on my own. I was paying bills, and so I had a job that took away from the time that I could be in the theater. And then so I found uh, the paying gigs that I found were in children's theater. I had a few of those. But um, at that point in my life, I was uh, dating the woman that I'm currently married to now. Uh, I was dating her, and I told her just off the cuff, like, hey, you know, if this acting thing never works out, I could always be a professional wrestler. Ha, ha, ha. And she got that in her mind, and she found a wrestling school close to where we live, and she made an appointment for me to meet the uh, the person that ran the school. His name was Sam DeCero, and the school was Windy City uh, School of Professional Wrestling. And so um, she says, I went into that meeting with Sam, and I came out with my eyes glazed over like I was hypnotized. And um, honestly, at that period in my life, this was the end of 1992, um, I was a little discouraged with acting, and I thought, you know what, step away from it for a bit, and I'm going to give wrestling a try. And if, it, if I wash out, if I fail at professional wrestling, I can always tell my family, hey, you know, I gave it a shot. I, I tried it. And so um, in January of 1993, I uh, took out a loan with uh, my mother, who co-signed for me, to pay the tuition to go into the wrestling school and uh, started in January of 93. And by April of 93, I was wrestling matches and um, it, it all started from there. Actually, like uh, I, I got a, a modicum of success within Windy City Wrestling, which was the, the promotion that the school was affiliated with. And um, I was there for three years and then decided to move to California and that was where I started sort of branching out into the independent scene after I moved to California. Mm-hmm. So basically what you're telling me is that your wife, your, your, your then girlfriend, future wife, pivotal in you becoming a professional wrestler. Is that what I'm hearing Absolutely. correctly? Absolutely. That... If it wasn't for her. I, I wouldn't have, cause it wasn't in my mind that like, I, I liked it, but I didn't think at that point, that and you have to understand too this was 1992 so now at this point people like sean waltman have been successful people like sean michaels have been successful people like bret hart who who weren't the ultimate warrior who weren't uh kevin nash they were smaller guys comparatively speaking and so like in 1987 uh when i graduated high school i wouldn't have thought at that moment oh maybe i can be a professional wrestler but when the opportunity arose in 1992 and I saw guys that were smaller sort of making a a name for themselves. I saw an opportunity. And one of the things that Sam DeCero uh, was very uh, sort of forward thinking in in terms of his business model, he saw that uh, there were a lot of smaller guys that were becoming interested in professional wrestling. And so Windy City at that time had, uh, Basically, they had weight classes within their professional wrestling promotion. They had a heavyweight champion, they had a middleweight champion, and they had a lightweight champion. Um, and the lightweight champion was basically patterned after the cruiserweight, the light heavyweight divisions that would come after that. 
so like when I started, I was uh, I became lightweight champion sort of early on in my career there at Windy City. And if Sam had been sort of uh, if he had fought with inside the box the way that a lot of wrestling promotions did, there wouldn't have been an opportunity for a guy who at that point, at that time weighed 180 pounds to become mm-hmm. a professional wrestler. He could have easily said, "Oh, you're too small, kid," or he could have said, "Oh." Uh, you're too small, but I'll take your money and, and, you know, take advantage of you. But instead right. he gave me the opportunity and um, he had a lot of uh, like smaller frame guys that were still very talented and still willing to learn and, and go in there and work hard. And so if, if mm-hmm. it wasn't for Sam, I wouldn't have had that same opportunity as well. I, uh, you know, I, I would have looked at wrestling the way I did five years prior and been like, Oh, I can't do this. I'm not big enough. I'm not good enough. And, and, Luckily, that wasn't the case. Wow. That, that is incredible. And what's even more incredible is that I'm fascinated in the fact that your wife helped you. Be, I mean, that's, that is like every man's dream for their wife, <laughs> the, the biggest support for them to be a wrestling fan even. I mean, wow. Well, I, can't I, know. Say, I can't say she was a wrestling fan. She was, she was more of a fan of me. And she was a wrestling. Yeah, yeah and so right. She completely exactly. supported me, and my parents did the same thing. Um, you know, when I told them, uh, you know, a couple years after I graduated college that I was looking to be a professional wrestler, um, they could have easily said, "Absolutely not. We're not going to do this." Mm-hmm. But they helped me, uh, you know, get the money to go into wrestling school, and uh, have, have supported me every step of the way. They they hate to see me hurt. They hate to see some of the stuff that I've gone through. And my wife's the same way, but at the same time, they understand that now I've sort of found my passion, and yeah. uh, they've 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 backed my play ever since. Yeah, I mean, my angle is, you know, it's not about her being a fan. It's the fact that a lot of people, you know, when when they <laughs> a lot of a lot of men when they when they tell their significant others that they want to be a wrestler, so many so many people so many so many girlfriends so many wives are like no way you know and yeah and that's just fascinating to me that she not only said yes she actually aided in the process so that's uh that's an, that's absolutely incredible so you uh you are known as one of being one of the best indie wrestlers of all time and um your indie work uh, allowed you to get uh, some some limelight in, in the WWE uh, and, and get an opportunity there. So how did that come about? Was it just um, a few years in the indies and, and someone from the WWE saw you and pulled you up from your work? Or did you know someone based on your experience working in the indies? How did you get a WWE opportunity? I believe it was 98-ish that, uh, right. that you – Start work. Start working for the WWE. How'd that come about? Okay, well, I, I knew a couple different people. First of all, one of them was Victor Quinones, who was a promoter uh, and uh, wrestling manager out of Puerto Rico. Uh, he was involved with uh, Carlos Colon's company, the WWC, down mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico, and he was also sort of a talent liaison uh, for the WWE between the WWE and uh, a lot of Mexican and Japanese wrestlers around the time that they tried to do the light heavyweights uh, division. So um, that period of time where you had uh, 
um, oh God, I want to uh, Negro Casas coming in and Takamishinoku and Shofunaki. Like that was all through efforts uh, that were facilitated by Victor Quinones. So Victor Quinones uh, knew of me from I had a I, I had a short stint in Puerto Rico in 1995. And uh, he knew of me through there. And my tag team partner at the time, his name was Kevin Quinn. Kevin got to know Victor uh, after working in Mexico, I want to say in CMLL. And so uh, Victor and Kevin got to be very good friends. And uh, there was a period of time where um, I, uh, when Victor was helping Taka uh, in the in the WWF, uh, there was a period of time where they came to the West coast, uh, actually towards Phoenix and they had television and, um, they needed someone to wrestle Takamishinoku. And so Victor knew me through Kevin and from Puerto Rico. And he gave me the opportunity to wrestle Takamishinoku on shotgun Saturday night, uh, in 1998. And so that, that particular match gave me a lot of, uh, publicity and gave me a lot of people, uh, who became aware of my work. And so one mm-hmm. That particular match did two things for me. First of all, it got me acquainted with Taka, which helped me get booked pan uh, a year later. And then it also got me uh, in front of people like Jim Cornette. And um, that helped me get booked in the WWF, the, uh, the, the dojos that Dory Funk Jr. was running at the time. Um, mm-hmm. It got me invited to one of those. And because of that, that got me in front of people like Jim Kettner, who ran the ECWA, who also was the mind behind the Super 8 tournament. And I got booked for Jim uh, and working with the ECWA and the Super 8 tournament. And that sort of opened the doors for me in the Northeast independent scene, which is where the independent scene in the United States was strongest. And so once I got booked over there, it got me in front of a lot of different promoters and it got me on the radar of a lot of different independent wrestling promoters. So getting booked over in Japan and then getting booked in the Northeast, um, those were the two avenues that really opened up for me as a result of that match with Paco. Wow, that's uh, that's great. And so, yeah, so you, you had some work on Shotgun Saturday Night, which uh, was, was one of the um, WWE failed projects, unfortunately. I, I live here in Ohio, and uh, I always – I always wanted to see Shotgun Saturday Night, but every time I would go like to Cincinnati and like you know stay there for a weekend or something, I, I would I would see Shotgun or Dayton, but uh, we never had it uh, in Columbus. Uh, but it, it but it was so but it was one of those things, kind of like the XFL. It's just one of those things that although it was quote unquote a failed project, it, it would always be talked about because you know Shotgun Saturday Night was. It was home to a lot of. It was an interesting concept, first of all, uh, and then it was home to uh, just a lot of a lot of things, a lot of memorable uh, angles. Not necessarily angles, but just different moments. Uh, but even even that allowed you to get a more of a television role, not not on air as yourself, but you became Dos, correct? One of the uh, conquistadors. Um, the, yeah, the, they the other the other version. Right, they well because I did that particular match that got me sort of involved with WWE. So when they came to the West Coast, uh, when they came within driving distance, 
um, I was uh, usually used as one of the extras, as one some of the enhancement talent then. So I got a chance to work with a lot of different guys, guys like Shokunaki and Dick Togo and Draz uh, and uh, uh, R-Truth. Um, and I did a couple dark matches as well with guys like Jeff Hardy. Um, and so when they needed people to do that particular angle, uh, Edge and Christian and the Hardy boys, uh, and, you know, sort of throwing the, the conquistas in the mix, they used me for that as well. And, um, yeah, unfortunately it wasn't a, a position where I was wrestling, but I did a lot of the, I did a lot of the backstage stuff with Edge and Christian. And that was my first, uh, interaction with Edge and Christian. Um, and to this day, they're still very friendly and very cool with me. So, um, that right. was very, it was a good little, uh, uh, circumstance uh, for me to be able to work with those guys back then. Yeah, that's 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 great, and that was really at the height of their team, you know, as as Edge and Christian. So it was pre- pretty interesting. So with your experience on Shotgun, with the Conquistadors angle, it seemed as if there was more of a promise with you in WWE. What happened there, as far as the reason why uh, you? didn't keep a lasting relationship with the WWE? Was it, you know, people not finding an angle for you? Was it something that you did? What what happened? What, what caused the separation? Um, the funny thing is no one ever really said anything. Like no one has ever came out and said, um, we, first of all, they never really came out and said, Hey, we're looking at you for a long-term position. Um, so this is your opportunity. And then they also never said, oh, uh, we were looking at you for a long-term possibility, but that's gone now. It was just Mm. like whenever they were around, I was available and I worked and I got good responses from, from the people that watched me work, but they never, I guess they never really saw anything that they could sink their teeth into, which was fine. I mean, I, I, I made myself available to them, but never, they never really offered to take it any farther after I did the uh, the dojo with them. Um, they just mm-hmm. kept in touch, and I I tried, you know, numerous times for dark matches and things like that, and it just never worked out. So, uh, like, I wish I could tell you there was one thing that was the reason, but there really wasn't. And so often, like, no one really says a whole lot of these things, too. It's like um, a lot of times things just sort of, never materialize and no one ever really says, Oh, this is what you're doing wrong. This is what you could have done. You should have done things go. And then, you know, circumstances just dictate that you're uh, in a different position or in a different location than where you thought you would be after, you know, all the stuff that I ended up doing with it. Mm. Yeah. It's just interesting. Knowing, knowing your work, knowing your body of work, I've, I've watched you. I think I remember, I mean, I remember the conquistadors thing. But I don't know when was it that I first started watching your work. Um, there was a a rare ECW match um, that you had against Rhino. You remember that? Yes, I do. So yeah, that was actually how, his debut in the uh, arena. Uh, yeah, was Rhino, and um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was a, that was another situation where um, I had talked to Paul, and Paul had, had brought me in, and um, I did like two weeks with them. And I talked to him afterwards, and he was like, yeah, we're going to do this with you and this with you. And um, I, in that period of time, too, like and like after I had that discussion with him, I never went back. And I think a lot of that was just a matter of, you know, me living on the West Coast, 
and flying me back and forth to yeah. where their shows were just monetarily didn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's, you know, that was uh, another situation where no one ever really said, Oh, this is what happened. I just, I know that I was working there and then I stopped working there and, uh, you know, it just went that way. Yeah. And you had hair then too. You just weren't. I did have hair. (laughs) Probably some of the worst hair in wrestling, which is probably the best that I went bald anyway. Yeah, the the bald look is is definitely you. So, how did the how did the fallen angel gimmick uh, come come about, and what's the whole meaning? Like, explain to people just in case they don't know what the fallen angel uh, gimmick comes from, and what's the meaning behind that. What when did it come about, and and what does it mean? Okay, well, uh, first of all, my first like like many young wrestlers do. Um, I started out as a baby face, and I was just Christopher Daniels. I was Christopher Daniels from day one. Um, and so uh, I was working on Windy City Wrestling, and I was a baby face. And um, after a while, I pitched an idea to Sam DeCero about turning heel. And I had a partner at that point, uh, Kevin Quinn, uh, who went with me to Puerto Rico a couple years later. But we were uh, looking for a name for our tag team. And uh, I came up with the Fallen Angels, and um, now Kevin wasn't really wasn't really up with that one. So, but I decided I really liked the name, and so I decided to keep that name for myself. And really, the whole uh, the whole impetus behind that name for me then was just the idea that I was a good guy, and now I'm a bad guy, and so I was a Fallen Angel. And and that name sort of stuck with me throughout. Like when I left Windy City and went abroad. Um, mm-hmm. I took it with me, and so I was the fallen angel everywhere I went. Um, it wasn't until a couple years later that um, I decided to sort of, like, put a look to the name. And, um, like, one of the things that sort of made me want to do that was watching uh, Goldust wrestle. Because mm. uh, when he started his whole character in the WWF, uh, that was very polarizing. You know, it was it was uh, it was something that everybody sort of had strong feelings about, whether they lived in the north or the south, or whether they were white or black or or whatever their background was. You know, I found that they had a really strong sense of their own sexuality, and so Goldust was pushing those buttons, and I thought that was uh, a brilliant move for him to, to to sort of push those buttons. It got everybody sort of riled up. And so I thought to myself, well, what would be another, I guess, hot button for people to sort of get upset about? And in my head, my answer was religion. And so I decided to become uh, a guy who thought he was God, a guy who thought he was God's chosen guy, and a guy that would go out and say, you know, uh, God doesn't love you. He loves me. I'm his chosen, and you're not his chosen, and sort of put myself above everyone else uh, in that respect. And so um, it wasn't. It was. It wasn't soon after that that I decided to uh, get a priest robe and wear that to the ring and sort of uh, uh, religious jargon in my in my promos to sort of put over the idea that I was this preacher type person uh, who thought he was God's, you know, God's vessel on earth, and that God was, you know, back in his play throughout, and everybody that was against him, you know, God hated them and loved me. And so that was sort of the, the, the character, and I, I did that 
character through the independent scene for a very long time. Wow. Yeah, I mean, being a very religious guy myself, I understood the Fallen Angel reference, but uh, yeah, the backstory of it makes it even more it makes it even more intriguing. That's uh, that's really cool. So you had you had a stint in in WCW as well. So a lot of people don't know that, and and you th- there were some ideas thrown around as far as what they wanted to do with you. But again, like ECW and WWE, it, it kind of never came to pass. So let us know your experience in WCW. Well, first of all, I don't know if everybody knows this, but I actually had two different stints in WCW. The first hmm. one uh, started in the beginning of 2000. Um, I had a dark match in Los Angeles here. And um, it wasn't soon after that, that Kevin Sullivan, who was booking at the time, he offered me a contract. Uh, and so I, I accepted, and I was set to debut uh, in the middle, I want to say April 5th, um, and all I had to do was finish one last tour of Japan, um, and so I was in Japan, and while I was in Japan, I read the news that Kevin Sullivan had been let go, and in his place were Vince Russo and Eric Bischoff. And so hmm. the day I was supposed to debut with Kevin Sullivan ended up being the day that, and I want to say this was in Denver, Colorado, where Vince and Eric started the show and basically reset everything. They gave the belts to yeah, they stripped the titles, their yeah. guys. Yeah, they stripped the titles. That was supposed to be my debut under Kevin Sullivan. And so I came back from Japan, and first thing I did was I called WCW, and you know I was like, am I, am I fired? Am I gone? And they're like, no, your, your job's with us. Your job's not with Kevin Sullivan. Your job's with us, so just wait. And we'll call you when we're ready for you. And so I waited a little while. And finally, they called me. And uh, they asked me to come to a Nitro that was in Atlanta. And so I met with Vince Russo and talked to him about some ideas. And um, and they had had an idea previous. Uh, I guess the gentleman that came up with the idea was still there uh, after Kevin left. And they had, they had the idea that I was going to be uh, Vampiro's superior. Um, they wanted me to sort of be, and they described it to me as if, if Vampiro was Darth Vader, they wanted me to be the emperor. Hmm. And so uh, they filmed one vignette with me and Vampiro. And uh, I remember being in the locker room, like I remember filming it. And then later they aired it on Nitro while I was in the locker room. And I just heard a bunch of like, what the hell? And who's that guy? And all that. And I was like, okay, well, that didn't go as well as I think mm-hmm. they wanted. And um, that was the last time they did anything with it. So, uh, and no one really said to me, oh, we should have done that different or you should have done anything different. Like I gave them what I thought they wanted and that was the last I ever did of it. And so I continued to travel with WCW for a couple months and then I stopped traveling with them and was just waiting at home. And then finally I got called and said, you know, you're making too much money for the amount that we're using you. And I said, in response, I'm willing to wrestle, so you can always use me. They're like, no, we're going to let you go at this point. So they let me go, and a couple months later, Terry Taylor called me and said, hey, we have an opportunity for you again to be on Nitro, and uh, we're going to do this thing with you. And so I went out and had the match uh, with Mike Modest uh, on Nitro, and this was January 2001, and um, I got signed after that. But 
I was signed under a developmental deal. And um, they had done the angle right after that where Scott Steiner broke my leg and broke Mike Modest's leg because the night before uh, he had broken – Sid Vicious broke his leg. And so they were doing a thing where Scott Steiner was breaking everybody's leg. And so they broke our legs and they said, okay, you're off healing. And when you come back, we'll do something with you. And it was a couple months later that WWF fought them and WCW closed. So that was the end of my second uh, wow. WCW thing. Man, these that's that's just crazy to me because it just seems. I mean, now you you've you've definitely cemented yourself as as being just you know world renowned, but it just seems like you were almost there. Something happened that just caused a, a, a big halting stop on these opportunities. It's just crazy, you know, and of course, you know, fate and, and, and just purpose and you're supposed to be here and, and things like that, you know, th- those can all come to play, but it just, it, it's just crazy that those times in the WWE and ECW and, and, and WCW, you know, were caused or were stopped by just something, <laughs> outside of of your control, it's not like you were uh, a drug head and, and blew the opportunity. It just, you know, um, it, it just just didn't go about. But I mean, you you rebounded your you rebounded career for sure. You you were saying, yeah, I, I you know for all of those things that didn't happen, um, I still kept at it, and uh, you know opportunities soon came around. Um, you know after two thousand one when. WCW closed and WWF didn't renew my contract or didn't pick me up. Um, you know, it was tough for a while to sort of see what was going to happen. And then it wasn't until 2002 that uh, Ring of Honor started and TNA started. And from there, I was pretty much entrenched with both of those companies off and on uh, since then. Yeah. You did some work in Japan before then, right? Before your ROH run? Well, yeah, definitely. I, I started in 99 uh, in Japan for Mishinoku Pro. And uh, mm-hmm. my second tour was the tour that I started doing the Curry Man gimmick. And um, that got popular enough with Mishinoku Pro that they brought me back uh, pretty much, I want to say pretty much every tour from 99 until 2000 and uh, the middle of 2000 when I signed my first WCW contract. And then... Um, when I got let go, I returned to Mishinoku and was touring with them. Uh, and because of that, that got me involved with New Japan. Um, the, the character got invited to do the uh, Super Juniors, the best of the Super Juniors tournament. And my first tour with them, they offered me uh, an opportunity to return. And um, after a couple tours, I asked if I could be full-time with or not full-time, but sort of exclusive with them. And so I stopped doing Mishinoku and started doing New Japan. And from, like, 2002 to 2004, I was doing, uh, you know, pretty frequently touring with New Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like you said, uh, was uh, yeah, ROH um, is when you really – ROH and TNA – is, is what's when you really started to become um, just the, the the name that you are. 
your, your stint in the, with the prophecy and, and ring of honor. Um, and you, you were in the first show, right? Loki won the title, if I'm not mistaken. Not in the first show. The first show was myself and Brian Danielson and Loki in the main event. Um, it wasn't until a couple of months later that they, they had the tournament and then, uh, the the end of the tournament was the, yeah. And then the end of the Mm -hmm. tournament was one hour four way match that it was me and Loki and Doug Williams and Spanky. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, that's right. July. It was June or July of 2002 that they did the uh, the finals of that tournament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, and low key won, if I'm not mistaken. Right. right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and that's what really I mean puts you on a map as a as a main player uh, in, in Ring of Honor. So explain your. You, you, let, let us know about your early days in Ring of Honor and how you got that opportunity and just uh, just some, some people who you got to – who you didn't wrestle before, who you really got to have some great matches with back then. Well, um, the, the Ring of Honor thing came about because uh, the people that ran it at that time, Rob Feinstein, Gabe Sapolsky, um, they had seen uh, the end of ECW in the Northeast area, and they noticed – they knew that there was a, a market for – that hardcore wrestling fan. And so they decided, you know, based, they also saw based on the King of Indies tournament that all pro wrestling had out on the West coast. That was based in part on the super eight tournament from ECWA. They saw that they could get these, basically these super shows made up of a lot of this independent talent that hadn't been brought up to WWE that, you know, two years earlier might've been working for WCW or might've been working for ECW, but now that there wasn't a place for them to work, they decided to do their own shows. And so um, at first I just, you know, you don't know at the time that it's going to become a, a fixture in professional wrestling. At that point I was, okay, this is a show. This, they call it ring of honor. Okay. This is a great show. And, and you look around the locker room, there was a lot of great talent there. And, um, you know, they brought Eddie Guerrero in to wrestle super crazy. And um, when we got there, we assumed that that was going to be the main event. And uh, we got there and Gabe said, no, you guys are the main event. Uh, Myself and Loki and Brian Danielson in a three-way. And I look back at that and understand now that Gabe didn't want to, I guess, put the name of Ring of Honor. He He wanted Ring of Honor not to be looked at as a place where I guess people who had already made their name were going to perform. He wanted guys to make their names in ring of honor. And so he gave us that opportunity to be the main event. And, uh, you know, I, I still think that match sort of stands up in terms of uh, some of the best three ways in, in the history of wrestling. Um, you know, that match, a lot of people still talk about, you know, 13 years later. Yeah. That three-way, and I think probably what people would vote, vote the best three-way will be the one with you, Joe, and, and AJ uh, for, for, for TNA. That that uh, that one was incredible. Uh, I watched that many times. Um, so, Triple X with, with TNA, uh, a, a Russo thing, I'd, I'd imagine, because he was, you know, he was the leader of, of uh, the sports entertainment extreme. Uh, how, how did that come about in the production meeting? I know that Russo was just a man of, of many, (laughs) 
cartoonish thoughts. And, you know, he, he's really big into characters, which I, which I can actually respect. But how did sex come about? And then triple X, I know that he wanted to be very edgy and, and, and the, the, the beginning of TNA, I remember watching the very beginning of TNA and just the, the pole dancers and just the whole TNA kind of uh, double speak and, and just, just that type of edginess, but it worked for you uh, and Elix and, and low key, interestingly enough, uh, as far as that, that, uh, that trio that you guys had, it was a, it was an amazing trio and it, it actually really worked for y'all to put y'all your, your names on the map. And then of course uh, the, the few that y'all had with AMW, it was absolutely amazing. So, how did that come about as far as Vince Russo choosing you three to become triple uh, X and what were your overall thoughts on that, on that uh, time in TNA? Well, I, I don't really know. Like I can't really speak on Vince's mentality in terms of the sports entertainment extreme. Um, I wasn't really privy to a lot of that stuff. I, all I can tell you about triple X was um, I, I think that Vince saw that the X division was becoming a an integral part of TNA at that point. Like Triple X didn't start until December of 2002. So from June until December, um, I think a lot of the focus went into the X Division, and that had a lot to do with guys like AJ Styles and Jerry Lynn and Low Key, who yeah. was there previous to me being there. Um, you know, all of these guys that were putting on these matches. You know, because we were on pay per view every week, I think the thing that was really going around was a, a real strong word of mouth about the matches that were going on on TNA pay-per-views at that point. So I believe the mentality for us as triple X, uh, especially for myself and low key at that point, all three of us were working pretty frequently in Japan. Um, I was doing stuff with Mishinoku and new Japan. Low key was doing stuff through zero one. And I want to say Elix was doing all Japan at the time. And so the mentality was they wanted to put a group of X division wrestlers together. Um, but they wanted to also, uh, you know, because they weren't doing full-time contracts at that point, they also wanted to sort of uh, be flexible in terms of scheduling. And so the mentality was the three of us, all three of us wouldn't be on tour at the same time for the same, for the three different companies. So they wanted it to, they wanted us to be a presence whether one of us was on tour or not, the other two guys would be there. And so they were sort of playing the, the Freebird rules with us, but not just on television, but also like with our situations with Japan. And so the idea was put us together as a trio. And then when one of us had to go overseas, the other two would be there to sort of, of triple X while hmm. the third guy was off. And so that was the mentality. And um, we got a lot of opportunities early on when they put us together, uh, I just I feel like Vince saw that there was uh, good chemistry between the three of us, um, and and I honestly think you know Vince had a relationship with Elix Kipper from WCW, and he had already seen a lot from Low Key in the six months that he had been there. Um, I got added, and I think like in Vince's eyes, I was the the third of the three, like the lower the lower guy out of the trio which was fine. I mean, I understood that, you know, like I said, he knew Elix, he had been watching low key for the last, and I had something to prove. So I felt like I going in there, um, 
there was a lot of, of opportunity for me to sort of put myself out there. And I, I thought I did a really good job of, and, and I think the three of us actually did a really good job of not making any one of us stand out more than the other. We looked like a team. We acted as a team. Um, no one guy ever took the focus more than anyone else. And I think that really lent a lot to us becoming a strong tandem. And then once Loki, there was a period of time where Loki was really injured. And so at that point, that was when Elix and I really became strong as just the tag team. And um, that's what led to us being just the, you know, just the two of us at that point, after a while, Loki sort of, um, they stopped using him as much as they did. And they just focused on Elix and myself as the team. Yeah. And y'all had some incredible matches uh, against uh, America's Most Wanted, including that uh, infamous cage match when Elix did that tightrope uh, Hurricane Rana. Yikes. Uh, and you were holding uh, the, the person. You were kind of you, you're kind of balancing. Uh, you kind of pushed the person off just as he were doing it. Was it who was it that uh, took took the bump? Was it was it uh, was it Chris Storm? Harris. Chris Harris. Oh, was it okay? Well, okay, Chris Harris. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what were your thoughts as uh, as Elix Skipper was doing the, the tightrope on the cage? And I mean, he took probably half a dozen steps at least. And I mean, were you I know I know that you, you know, you, you've seen so many things and that had to be <laughs> really a first in many people's eyes. What were your thoughts as far as while he was walking that cage, like, you know, please don't fall. Was it, was it one of those things or was it, you it was know, just having so much confidence? Yeah. I'd imagine. Even well, if I mean, had I, I confidence. Thing, like Elix used to do that on the, the, the ring ropes all the time. Like he would right. stand on the buckle and he would walk the middle of the rope, like you walk to the middle of the ring on the, on the top rope. And, you know, we both thought, uh, you know, the, the top of the cage is at least solid. It's not swaying back and forth like a rope. So, mm-hmm. you know, in Elix's mind, he had no doubt that he could do it. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, I, and I told him, like, you know, I, I, felt, I felt confident that he could do it as well. But, of course, at the same time, we also had a backup plan in case it didn't go the way it was supposed to go. Okay. But, you know, as it's happening, and once he made those steps, I realized that he was going to make it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was his opportunity to sort of make history. And that stands out. I mean, I think, like you said, um, it's the memorable part of that particular match. Like, I don't think anybody oh, yeah. else remembers anything else about it um, yeah. other than it was a really good match. So, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. He sort of cemented his place in, in history. Yeah, it was it was one of the best spots I've ever seen in my life. That That's for sure. So, so you had some success in, in, in TNA, um, had some ins and outs, and, and, and what – what happened as far as your, uh, from a contractual standpoint, because you were in TNA and then you went away. And I remember you uh, went to R- went back to ROH and just kind of um, help initiate the television championship. I remember watching you and I think Eddie Edwards had a fantastic match uh, when it was on HD net. Um, and, but it was kind of an in and out thing. You came in and then you, um, had another gimmick where you had the the, the paint on the face, uh, kind of an edgier type move. Move you were, I think at that time you were more of a of a heavyweight. You were seen more of a, of a heavyweight than you were a cruiser cruiserweight. And you also had an opportunity to to 
to have an angle with Sting. So, uh, you know, that that's incredible too. So why, why the in and out? Was it, we don't have anything for you right now. We'll call you type thing or what, what, what caused the inconsistency of staying through TNA? Well, um, okay. Well, the timeline ended up going like this. I, uh, I started doing the stuff with Sting, and that was the period of time where I had the face paint. Um, mm-hmm. It was an angle that Vince Russo had come up with. And um, for some reason, I felt like they never really pulled the trigger on it. Like, they had me talking about doing stuff with Sting, and they had me interacting with stuff with Sting. But I, I felt like they were still doing other things with Sting that never made me the focus of Sting's attention. And yeah. so I, I always felt like, you know, by, by making me seem like I wasn't the most important thing on Sting's plate, that it sort of hurt me. Like it made me look like I wasn't important enough for the fans to care about either. And so after that, uh, I sort of, that was the end of the whole fallen angel character with me. Uh, just because I felt like it wasn't working. Like I felt like I had gone as far as I could go in TNA with that mentality and that style of, of promo. Uh, and so I pitched the idea of doing Curry man with them. And um, and so they gave me a year where I was doing Curry Man as a character. And um, at the end of that, they got rid of the Curry Man character. They fired him. And uh, I came back for a short period of time, uh, first as suicide, because uh, the person that was doing suicide got injured right away. Um, and, and so I took his place for a couple months. And then I was back to doing myself. I was back to being myself. And, um, yeah, and then just near the, near the end or near the beginning of 2010, uh, they basically let me go. They said they didn't really have anything for me. And so they were going in a different direction. So I went to, to Ring of Honor around the beginning of 2010. And um, I was actually uh, – the stuff you were talking about with Eddie Edwards, Eddie Edwards was actually the first television champion, but I was his – I want to say his first – real angle um mm-hmm. when i was the guy that defeated him for the belt and uh i had a good couple months maybe six months a- as television champion uh but what had happened was uh there was a big uh a big upheaval in tna and uh, they had to change some plans and so when that those plans changed one of the things that happened was uh aj styles and the rest of fortune turned babyface and so they did an angle between AJ and uh, Bully Ray, and someone mentioned that when AJ got hurt, like they did an angle where AJ was hurt, they mentioned that me coming back would be uh, a reasonable, uh, a reasonable happening. And so they called me and they asked me to come back. And so at the time, Ring of Honor allowed me to go back, and TNA allowed me to finish up my Ring of Honor contract. So for a short period of time, I was doing Ring of Honor and TNA. Um, and I was very fortunate that both companies sort of let me do that. So I had some really good matches uh, on my way out of Ring of Honor, uh, some great stuff with Eddie Edwards, uh, some great stuff with Colt Cabana, and then uh, finally losing the championship to El Generico. Uh, like, those were some great matches. I was real proud of, of my work uh, as the television champion for Ring of Honor. And then, like, right after that, like, I – got in with fortune and was doing the stuff between fortune and immortal. And then soon after that, AJ and I sort of had our falling out where I 
sort of turned the corner and became heel again. And that sort of yeah. led to the, the the bad influence team with Frankie. <clears throat> yeah, which is it just seems like greatness just fell together. I mean it it's it's interesting. Now how much let, let me ask you this. How often did you tag with Frankie you know, in indies or anything like that. Did you have a history tagging with him, or did it just kind of fall into place? Uh, no, we never tagged. We might have tagged once or twice on Independence or in TNA, off and on. But like when we started as the team, um, we were just friends. I mean, he and I have been traveling together uh, for many years before we became tag team partners. Um, mm-hmm. He's a Southern California guy, like myself. Um, when I moved out here, it wasn't too long after that that he started training. Uh, he trained in Calif- uh, in Massachusetts with Killa Kowalski, but he's always been a Southern California guy. And so when he moved back here, um, he uh, worked out at the School of Hard Knocks, which was Bill Anderson and Jesse Hernandez School here in San Bernardino. And that's where I was uh, going to practice and train and do stuff. And so we've been friends for a very long time. And then once TNA started and we both were on the TNA roster for a good long while, uh, we were always on the same flights. We were always in the car together. And so we just became friends. And mm-hmm. so uh, the, the Bad Influence team came around because at that point in TNA, um, the Motor City Machine Guns had split up because they were going through injuries. And then they had just split up beer money. Uh, they just started doing this, the storyline with Bobby Roode turning against James Storm. And so... I knew that they didn't really have any plans for me as a singles. And Frankie sort of thought that same way. So we got together and we said, you know, we could put our efforts into being a marquee tag team and be the next beer money or the next motor city machine guns for this company. And so that was what we offered to TNA. And they came back to us with the angle between and AJ styles. And uh, it ended up being the thing with Claire Lynch. And that sort of cemented (laughs) me and Frankie as the tag team. Yeah. That was that was interesting uh, because because Frankie was reluctant for a while, and then he just kind of caved in and 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 the both of you. I mean, it was it was great. I mean, just the chemistry. You can tell, you know, you can tell when something's organic and, and when it has just a real feel to it, uh, rather just putting two people together and hope hopefully that it sticks. I mean, you you can tell that it was just meant to be that you and Frankie tag team and you had had that organic feel as if y'all knew each other as the old, you know, tag teams, the Hart Foundations and the the Rockers. They knew each other so well that they could, you know, ex- accentuate each other's, you know, high spots and, and, and strengths. And I can tell even now with, with NROH that, you know, bad influence and now the addiction that we see that. And just real quick, why don't y'all have the, uh, the the sexy beast theme song anymore? I love that theme song. That was, I know the worship, you know, worship us now or whatever. That I understand it. It fits more <laughs> to your character, but is it is it because it uh, you guys turn heel that y'all don't have that theme song no more? That, I think that was probably one of the, one of the coolest theme songs. That's absolutely it, man. Um, we we changed our attitude, and so we changed everything, our look, our style. Um, we sort of turned the corner and wanted to embrace full-on being heels. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, to me, it just means you, you, you don't give the fans 
a reason to like you. If you do, yeah, I, I agree. you're sort of working against the grain. And so we decided, like a lot of people love that song, and, and that song uh, by Cushionator, Sexy Beast, was a great song. And, uh, but I knew that if we kept that song or if we kept that style of entrance where we were sort of bebopping down the aisle like I used yeah. to be, like people would get behind it. And so I, I realized that I had to go against that grain, and I didn't want to be liked. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted people to not like me. And so uh, I changed the look. I changed the gear. Um, I got the, the full-on military jacket made to look like the ring general. And, and that was the mentality was to, to sort of go against people's likes. I and, love it. And so that's what yeah. we're working toward. I absolutely, I see, see, I can go on and, and we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but I, I can go on and on about that and, and how much I appreciate a wrestler appreciating still the character of a heel. And, and I, I love it. I, I, yeah, there, there's your, your, your points. If it, if it, if it matters at all, your, your, your points, your Chris Featherstone points just uh, increased exponentially <laughs> with, with that statement well, because absolutely, because I, I think that's, I, uh, I, I write so much about it. Just why, why are people, why is pro wrestling losing so many viewers? I think because people want to get over for their wrestling skills more than their character. And I think we were, we're missing that we're missing heels being heels and wanting to be heels. And I love well, the fact think, that. Yeah, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say part of that. I, I think part of the, the problem is that pro wrestling has changed so much and, and people, people are so much more aware of the goings on behind the scenes and they're True. so much more involved that it's hard for people to establish a character that is believable as someone that you don't want to like, um, you know, because the line between the character and the real wrestler are often blurred. Um, it's tough for guys to, to go out there and actually truly be hated just because I think people, the average wrestling fan sort of knows what the gig is too. So even in their best, like even you, Chris, someone watching, someone watching our stuff, like you appreciate how hard we're working to be the bad guy, but you also realize that we're working to be the bad guy and not, you know what I mean? Like we're not actually kicking children as we walk to the, our house right. or, you know what I mean? Or, you know, we're not spitting in the punch bowl at the, at the Christmas. Like mm -hmm. it, it's tough to, to, to fudge that line between the character that you are and the person that you are. And, and that's the, that's the difficulty I feel in, in today's professional wrestling is that everybody's so micromanaged and under the microscope, like the fans and, and, and the rest of the world, they see every aspect of your life. And so to, to sort of fool them and to sort of fool them into thinking that you are actually the, the bad person that you're trying to yeah. portray on television that's a chore, man. It's very tough. And so like yeah. we do our very best to, for people to forget that we're real people. The minute they come in and watch the show, we want them to sort of suspend that disbelief and get angry yes. at us for what we're doing in the building and in the, the, the context of professional wrestling. It's just hard for people to let, to let that go and, and not try to 
analyze and evaluate every little thing that you do. Yeah, I, I, and I, I totally agree with that. And I think the problem, though, as from from a fan standpoint, is they're trying – so many fans – um, and I've written hundreds of articles on Bleach Report and Sports Illustrated and, and www.nation.com uh, and, and other big websites that I used to write for. It's like I, I spend time to just go through all the hundreds of thousands of comments that uh, people have had on my on, on my uh, articles. And one of the biggest takeaways that I've noticed is that people are – I think people are unfairly bringing re- too much reality in wrestling, if you understand what I'm saying. And I, I don't, I don't like that. I think that's a dangerous, slippery slope because I think wrestling became wrestling because Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair and you know people Hulk Hogan they were larger than life characters and people suspended reality to invest in this person's character. They didn't care right. about, you know, them. They didn't care about anything about them outside of the arena, nothing. <laughs> and uh, and right. I think that that's what popularized pro wrestling so much. And I think the problem now is that people actually care about the tweets and the Facebook mess posts and, you know, the Instagram pictures and things like that. The person in the character is kind of tying in with the real person, and I think that that's right. kind of causing an issue. And I and I and I respect people like you because when you're a heel, you're a heel. And I remember when I was uh, I went to an ROH show in Ohio, uh, my hometown, uh, uh, and you were there, and it was so funny because I I, I literally chuckled because you stayed in your character. Because uh, I, I was in a spot where I could see you sit all the way in the back. You were at a chair. You were in a chair sitting, watching watching the rest of the matches. Uh, I think it was y'all against the Briscoes, if I'm not mistaken. And after that, you, you sat down in the back, way in the back, and people were coming to you, and you were still staying in character, and you weren't really saying much to them. You're kind of like, you know, hey, you know, I'm focused on this match here, and it it it's, it seemed kind of jerkish a little bit, but I appreciate it because, again, when you're in that arena, you're in that arena. You are you are just consumed in the character of Christopher Daniels or whomever he'll you insert there or whomever babyface insert there, and I think. That's the issue with modern day wrestling that people just don't really want to admit. Like we have to, when we're in the arena, when we're watching that screen, it's welcome to our world. It's an entirely different world for us professional wrestling fans and wrestlers that we all just need to embrace and not, you know, not blur the line when we go out the arena. So I definitely give you kudos for that. So, well, thank you. And, and, oh, absolutely. And wrapping it up, is there any talks? Uh, have you had any talks within past years? You know, NXT is starting to just uh, erupt. Excuse me, erupt. And has there been any talks to bring Christopher Daniels to the WWE in the past couple of years? 
Uh, not really. I, I think I think my best time for them, at least in their eyes, was the period of time when I was under contract with TNA. So I feel like, you know, even though I could conceivably go there and and you know possibly thrive, um, I think to them, at my age, I'm probably past the point of being a valid investment to them, which is fine. I mean, I don't have anything to prove, and they certainly don't. Their business doesn't hinge on whether or not I sign with them either. So I, I, I feel like we're both probably fine where we are. And honestly, mm-hmm. um, the last year or two with Ring of Honor has shown me how much Ring of Honor has meant to me in my career. And I feel a, a very strong loyalty to them at this point. So, I mean, yeah. I, I'm not really looking to go anywhere else. I mean, um, uh, Ring of Honor has been very good to me at this point, And uh, I want to continue to help the company uh, not just by being in the ring, but by being someone behind the scenes that can sort of help guide and, and direct uh, the product towards positive growth. And if I can yeah. do that, uh, then I feel like I'm I'm doing something not just for Christopher Daniels, uh, the career of Christopher Daniels, but for Ring of Honor as a company, as a whole, as a product. If I can do that, then I'm certainly doing more than I, you know, than I could. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not going to I can respect that certainly. Um, it's just that we, we we've seen James Storm come, we've seen Joe come, and they've both, especially Joe, uh, especially with the NXT London event, uh, just an incredible match. And and Joe and Storm coming in, uh, two people who you've had great feuds with uh, in TNA, uh, they came and, and made a presence in NXT. And then I don't know. To me, I just see you as that trainer on breaking ground on the, on the WWE network. I see you as that, that player coach, so to speak, having a couple well, of matches honestly, on NXT. I feel like there are a lot of guys that are on the, not independent team, but I mean, guys through TNA guys that I've known in the last, you know, 10, 20 years that could fit that role very well. And it just mm-hmm. so happens that, you know, like Joe, Joe, the timing of Joe's departure from TNA was very good in the sense yeah. that NXT started looking at people outside of their own backyard in terms of, like, people that they were building from the bottom up. They saw someone like Joe who had that worldwide experience, and 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 Joe has put it to good use. They gave him the opportunity and said, you know, let's see what happens when we take a guy like Joe or like uh, Finn Balor or Kevin Owens like these guys that have had worldwide experience outside of the WWE, let's put them in the WWE system and see what happens. And Mm -hmm. look at Kevin Owens now, look at Joe now, look at Finn Balor now, like they've done amazingly well. And so I I think that those, those three examples certainly lends uh, someone like James Storm an opportunity where he might not have had that opportunity two years prior. So I mean, yeah. just the timing of Joe leaving was good for Joe, and it worked out good for him. And it, I, that probably will open doors for people in the future to to get an opportunity where you know many years ago they might not have looked at someone with ten years independent wrestling experience as a viable candidate for a, a roster spot. So I mean, coming back to my particular uh, example, like if they had had that mindset maybe five years ago that might have been me, you know, when I left TNA in 2010, if 
NXT was in the position it is now, that might have been a spot that I might have been able to do. But the timing of it was just different for me. And so it ended up where, uh, you know, going back to Ring of Honor and reestablishing that bond and then doing that same thing two years ago has led to a much stronger relationship between me and Ring of Honor and, and one that I continue to pursue and continue to, to, uh, to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes sense. Uh, and I can totally see that. Last question to you is why in the world were you never world champion in TNA or OH? Was it ever discussed? I, I, that is the age old question in my mind. And we're getting a bunch of um, a live uh, comments here right now. And, and I saw that pop up a few times too. Why were you never world champion? What happened? Those those are all what discussions that you should have when you interview uh, Gabe Sapolsky and Vince Russo. And, you know, I, I'm sure it was discussed at certain points with certain people, but, like, as to why or why not, it's not really my question to answer. I, I felt mm. that there were opportunities, certainly opportunities, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't the right business move for those opportunities um you know so i mean that's the way it is it's not always it certainly isn't up to the person himself you know these are decisions that are made by uh, people higher than me and so all i can do is make it viable and worthwhile to do and if they decide to do it then they do and if they don't um i'm still you know i'm still where i'm at i'm still i've still done what i've done and if i never get to be world champion i i still consider myself very successful, especially in the grand scheme of things. I feel like I've done a lot more than I might've thought I was going to do when I started doing this in 1993. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. I'm not giving up on you, man. If, if Jerry, I'm not giving up either. I haven't, I haven't stopped yet. I'm not gonna. So I believe you. There's still time. Believe me. That's true. If, Hey, if Jerry Lynn can win an ROH world championship later in, in his career, uh, so can you. And, and I guess the, the, the question to you is, is how long do you think you have left? Uh, I, you know what? I, I'm honest with myself to know that I'm, I'm pretty close to the end of it now, but at the same time, I realize that the end of this can be three, five, seven years from now. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with how I'm feeling physically. And right now I feel great. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with how I'm feeling creatively. And, and Ring of Honor has been outstanding in that respect, uh, working with me and, and doing the stuff that we've been doing the last couple of years. And um, I, I have total faith in Ring of Honor in the creative side that, uh, you know, if, if I had ideas, um, they would be receptive to them. They might not always do them, but at the same time, they'll at least give me the opportunity to say this or that or, or however I feel. And, um, you know, and, and when you have that creative freedom, to go in and, and speak your mind and, and sort of pitch ideas of yours. Um, I, I think that it's better overall. I mean, as long as, as viable options are, are considered and weighed, um, it's a positive thing overall. And so um, for me, that that's one of the things that keeps me going too, is knowing that uh, I've got a, a company that, that respects my opinion and, um, and is willing to listen to me and, and, and give me, you know, my time in the light to, to sort of speak my mind or pitch my idea or whatever it is. And um, as long as I'm working with these guys, I'm going to give them every effort to continue to be a force inside the ring and out. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I've interviewed legends. I've interviewed world champions, but only I've only been interviewed one fallen angel. So I appreciate your <laughs> well, time, Chris. You're welcome, man. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, let me take this opportunity to say thank you to your fan base uh, for listening. I, you know, if it wasn't for those guys, the the real fans of pro wrestling, uh, none of us would be where we are today if it wasn't for their support. So I, I, I sincerely say thank you to all of you guys listening tonight. I appreciate it. Totally agree with you. I, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, plug yourself right quick. Uh, uh, social media and upcoming events. Uh, okay. Um, well, you can see me on Twitter at FAC Daniels. Um, you can catch me on Ring of Honor television every week, uh, Wednesday nights on Comet or uh, on their syndicated network. You can go to ROHWrestling.com to check local listings to see where we are on in your area. And um, that's pretty much it, man. I mean, everything that I got going on, I usually uh, pitch through Twitter. So just keep an eye on my Twitter feed, and I'll let you know where I'm going to be in the in the coming months. And um, we'll see how it goes from there. Just show up with me. Awesome. It's been a pleasure, sir. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much, and happy holidays. You too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You are now listening to the Pancakes and Power Slam Show, hosted by Chris Featherstone and Derek of Crave Wrestling. This is the new Tuesday Night Titans. Ladies and gentlemen, the fallen angel Christopher Daniels. As soon as I think that I couldn't have a better interview here in in the string of interviews of Pancakes and Power Slams, it happens again, Derek. It happens again. It's going to continue to happen. This is what happens on Tuesday nights at Pancakes and Power Slam. So, obviously, Chris, it's going to keep going. Ten minutes is never enough. That's about all the time we have tonight. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the interview that you had with Christopher Daniels on We Are Wrestling just distinguishes who we are. This is wrestling at its best. Tuesday nights, forget Monday Night Raw. Tuesday night's where you need to be. We've got everything that makes sense in the world of pro wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just, I mean, yeah, this the overall view of the Slammies, we're going to talk about that, and then and then let's spend probably 90 seconds on that, uh, and then we're going to talk about the Flavor of the Week, uh, the number 30 entrance from 94 to 99 real quick. Uh, the winners, uh Taker and Brock wins the match of the year. This is awesome. Goes to uh, Ronda and uh, Ronda and Rock at WrestleMania. Bell, Nikki Bella gets the Diva of the Year. Uh, Sting gets the surprise return of the year, which I was uh, actually happy about. Um, Hero and All of Us Award. John Cena. Superstar of the Year goes to Seth Rollins. Shocking moment was uh, Kalisto's Toledo El Sol. Uh, our truth gets the LOL moment of the year, which is actually really funny. That was, that was, I literally cracked up laughing when that happened, uh, during the money in the bank. Neville gets the breakout star of the year, which I was thinking like it, it, it may have been rigged the votes, but then seeing how he was just completely brushed off was, it was like, you know what? This may not have been rigged. Uh, Robert Rio goes to Taker and, and Brock. Stone Cold Podcast gets the best uh, original uh, w, w, WWE Network. Double Cross of the Year was Mizdow. Good to see him. 
extreme moment of the year was Reigns uh, and, and the whole Triple H thing at TLC. Tag team of the year was the Usos. I like the Usos, but this was a horrible choice. The New Day was certainly the best tag team. And then the best John Cena U.S. Open Challenge. Why is that an award, first of all? But the one against the one with Cesaro is the one that won, which rightfully so. So, and then you know, there's not much to talk about with Raw. It just you 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 have you spend so much time in in, in making Roman Reigns somebody, and then you just have it just thrown away with just smiley face reigns again. And the WWE, they they just cannot stay consistent with developing the character Roman reigns. And just, it's absolutely horrible to see that with, and and then triple H getting beat up and then coming back uh, three days later on NXT and, you know, barely saying he, you know, mentioning something they're, they're sabotaging the character of Roman Reigns by having Stephanie and, and Triple H just being inconsistent with selling. It's just it's it's really painful to watch their, their failure of developing stars. They've got nothing for that. And it's last night Stephanie McMahon just screaming and yelling, "Get out of my ring! Get out of my ring! Get out of my building!" And yeah. he just stands there and smiles. I was bored. It was so boring. Horrible, horrible start to Raw. The Slammies itself is a joke. It always has been. I mean, go back and watch on WWE Network, the 1987 Slammies. I mean, the thing was just an absolute massacre. And it, the best moment of last night, like you said, R-Truth stole the night. Uh, with uh, showing his money in the bank moment, which I almost forgot about. I'm glad they showed it again because I had to rewind it and watch it on my DVR. And then um, when he came out and did the whole Steve Harvey incident, that happened at the uh, Miss Universe yeah. pageant. Yeah. Hats off to Art Bruce. He really made the night. So, I mean, that was funny. The Miss Dow was my favorite uh, slammy moment, but the Niagara commercial, that, again, that was a great funny <laughs> moment. So, funny, funny night on Monday Night Raw, but Roman Reigns, looks, again, he looks like a punk now. Stupid grin on his face that I really don't care to see. So, Monday Night yeah. Raw didn't, yeah. didn't make the cut. Monday Night Raw deserves one of these. Mm. Absolutely. All right, so uh, real quick, I have to do trivia. Um, who's the uh, longest reigning U.S. champion in history? Not only in, in the history of the title, the longest reigning United States champion. All right, real quick, let's do it. It is now time for the Flavor of the Ladies and gentlemen, 30, uh, number 30 participants, 99 to 2004. Uh, China was uh, the 3499. Uh, in 2000, uh, the, the number 30 uh, was X Pac. I uh, got eliminated uh, by Lorac. Um, yeah, and. and Xbox was I think it was one of the final four in two thousand. Um, so we're going to go backwards. We're going to talk about more about two thousand next week. Um, but as far as ninety nine, I said that, and then as far as uh, ninety eight, the thirtieth uh, was Vader gets eliminated by Goldust. Only stays in the uh, in the match for only a couple of minutes. Very interestingly enough, the Undertaker uh, by Austin. Uh, 
who end up gets eliminated by Austin who ends up winning the whole thing. He, he stays in there for over 45 minutes. Didn't win the title that year, though. Went against Bret Hart. Duke the Dumpster Drossy stayed in there for a little over a minute. Gets eliminated by Diesel and Kama in 96. Uh, 95, uh, number, the number 30 was Crush. Stayed in there for almost nine minutes. Gets eliminated by the British Bulldog, which was the runner-up that year uh, with Shawn Michaels. And then finally, 94, uh, the number 30 was uh, Adam Baum. Gets uh, stayed in there for about five minutes. Uh, gets eliminated by Lex Luger, who co-won that year. Which one of those uh, rumbles in about 30 seconds, which one of those sticks out to you the most? Uh, it sticks out. It's probably Stone Cold Steve Austin when he won. I mean, he was at the height of his fame. And it's, it's, the number 30 entrance never really did a whole lot. Everyone vies for it. I mean, obviously, number one entrance always the one who can outlast everybody and, you know, survival of the fittest. So, but again, Stone Cold Steve Austin to win in it. Not going to win title, but it was most memorable for me just for the fact of the Attitude Era. I remember yeah. Yeah, 99 Royal Rumble was horrible, but either way, that was probably my best. I agree that the 99 with Vince winning was just absolutely horrible. And and, sta- and standing, going in the concession stands and out the ring and staying out for most of the time, it was just, it was really, really weird. Lex Luger is the correct answer, so you deserve one of these. Good job there. Uh Correct answer. Good job. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is 195 in a nutshell. Great interview by the fallen angel, Christopher Daniels. I, I, You know, again, I just love when people appreciate the business. 45 years old, 23 years in the business, and loves the fans. That's what it's all about. And as he's thanking the fans, he, he's even thanking my fans. So that's that's even that's incredible. So thank you so much, Christopher Daniels. Great interview, one of my favorites. So thank you. Listen, everyone, Merry Christmas. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Celebrate the reason for the season. And I'm not afraid to say that that's Jesus. So enjoy. Have a great Christmas. God bless. Goodbye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.